Hey, this is Isaac. Before we get into the show, I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast this past year. This will be our last episode of 2021, but we'll be back in the new year with more crazy stories and probably a lot more Lydia Pinkham from 1922. And now, the show. Hello and welcome to Last Week 100 Years Ago the podcast where we bring you the hottest news from last week, 100 years ago. I'm Michael Karch. And I'm Isaac Smith. And today we'll be trying to answer the question, what happens when you're twins and you both love the same man? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty excited to get to that article. <laughs> I, I'm pretty excited to hear the answer to that one. I really have no idea what, what happens in the 1920s. Today, <laughs> today uh, there are some certain sites where I think we can get the answer to that question but in the <laughs> 1920s i don't think those were around so i'm very curious to see uh what the answer that will be there's a cosmopolitan magazine out there somewhere that has that answer <laughs> <laughs> kill your twin is the answer <laughs> i think that's a very good answer <laughs> and inside next to it are, is instructions on how to make chloroform <laughs> all right well <laughs> For uh for our first segment, uh let's uh let's start with some crime. The crime corner. All right, so this one is uh, about a recurring character we we once talked about. It was in the Concord Times, November seventeenth, and it's just a very small paragraph. I didn't really notice it at first, but when I kind of read that article, I was like, oh, I know this guy. So this this happened. In uh, Phoenix, Arizona, November 16th, and the paragraph title is Bandit Captured. And I'll just read the article. It's really short. A bandit captured here last night at the Santa May station following an attempt to rob a mail car was identified today by fingerprints as Roy Gardner, who recently escaped from the federal penitentiary in McNeil's Island. According to the police, Gardner admitted his identity. Good old Roy. He always needs that notoriety. He always needs to tell them exactly who he is. He's like, <laughs> I want everybody to know that I did this. Like when he was writing those letters in prison, I remember he's like, I'm Roy Gardner and I approve this crime. That's like the tone that they had. He, he kind of reminds me of that guy from uh, uh, the second Austin Powers. When you ask him a question three times, he has to answer you. you like except he's gotta like tell you who he is well do i have a crime article for you this article comes from the reno nevada gazette journal on tuesday november 22nd 1921 and it's titled bluebeard's wife number 11 loved him there's a lot in that yeah there's a lot lot in that there's a lot in that and it it obviously drew me in because i really wanted to know about his other 10 wives uh sadly i don't have that much information on his other 10 wives because there's a whole lot else to bluebeard from this article and from outside of this article so the article reads quote immense crowds today traveled from paris in hopes of hearing the testimony of fernand surget by the way there's a lot of french names in this and i did take four years of french in high school I don't remember most of it, and I'm going to try my best, but it will probably be bad, but I will try. 
Uh, immense crowds today traveled from Paris in hopes of hearing the testimony of Fernand Surgette, Bluebeard Landrieu's 11th alleged fiance, and the only one according to the prosecution to escape death at his hands. Surgette stood by her former lover, telling a story of simple love and delicate attentions bestowed on her by the man accused of strangling, cutting to bits, and cremating 10 other women. Landrieu showed emotion for the first time while well, today's witness recalled their relations. So that's it of that article. And obviously, I wanted to dig in and learn way more about who this man was and why he killed so many people. So who is Henry Desiree Bluebeard Landrieu? Well, Henry Landrieu was a French serial killer nicknamed the, quote, Bluebeard of Gambai. G-A-M-B-A-I-S is the town in France. It's said that he murdered at least seven women in the village of Gambai between December 1915 and January 1919. He also killed at least three other women, plus a young man who was one of the sons of one of those victims at a house he rented from December of 1914 to August of 1915 in the town of Vernoulier outside of Paris. The true number of his victims was almost certainly higher. He had apparently been in romantic correspondence with, get ready for this number. Actually, I want you to guess the number. How many women do you think he was in correspondence with? 30. 283 women oh during God. the First World War, including 72 that were never traced. And so Landrieu protested his innocence, but was finally charged with the murders in November of 1921 at the trial in Versailles. He was sentenced to death and executed by guillotine on February 25th, 1922. A little side note, apparently his severed head is on display at the Museum of Death here where I live in sunny Los Angeles, California. I have been to this museum. It is not for the faint of heart. I don't really recommend the museum unless you're a big fan of gore and severed heads and other gross things like that. Anyway, apparently he was able to avoid capture during the war for a few reasons. One being the war itself, which used a lot of France's police force, so there weren't that many people out there able to look for him. Another, and this is the messed up part, his wife and four children knew his whereabouts throughout the war, but shielded him from the police. His youngest son, Charles, worked as his, quote, apprentice, helping Bluebeard remove furniture and other possessions from at least five of his known victims' apartments and even acting as his chauffeur. What? What? His eldest son, Maurice ended up being arrested for selling the valuables of one of his father's victims. And Maurice even helped his father make up a cover story for the disappearance of one of his later victims. But that's not all. Then his wife forged one of his victim's signatures and impersonated another and stole money from their bank accounts. Now you're probably wondering how he got caught. Well, that all falls to Marie Lacoste, the younger half-sister of Celestine Buisson, Buisson met Landrieu by answering a May 1st, 1915, quote, Lowly Hearts advertisement in Le Journal, is what it's called, Le Journal. She became engaged to Landrieu almost immediately, then his alias being Georges Fremiette, but put off their marriage for more than two years. So Lacoste suspected that her half-sister's fiancé, Landrieu, was trying to get a hold of her savings and steal her money. And her suspicions were confirmed when Buisson admitted that she gave Landrieu control of her investments. Buisson did not take her sister's advice and stayed with Landrieu a day later, traveling with him to Gambai, 
on a one-way train ticket never to be heard from again. And Landrieu apparently became worried that Buisson's sister, Lacoste, might suspect him of her sister's murder and sent her two forged postcards with her signature, her fake signature. Lacoste identified these as fakes but didn't take any action thinking her sister was pretty much a lost cause, but she didn't think that she was murdered yet. What did raise her suspicion was when in December of 1918, Lacoste received a letter from her half-sister's son who was blinded from the war and had tried to contact his mother about borrowing money. But since his mom didn't reply, he contacted Lacoste and asked if she could help him contact her. When she arrived at her sister's old apartment, the concierge told her that the last time Buisson had been seen there was in the summer of 1917 and that there had been at least one other woman that spent the night with the pseudonym of Fremiet before Landrieu paid off the lease. And this is what sparked Lacoste to think that Landrieu killed her sister. So she did a super badass thing. She compiled a dossier for the police, like noting his appearance, his known movement since 1915, location and design of the house in Gambai, thefts from her sister's bank accounts, postcards, etc., like everything. And so she spent a couple of months doing this and then took it to the police who told her that she would need to contact the mayor of Gambai. So she sent the mayor a letter. The mayor didn't know of her sister or any man named Fremiet living there, but he did recognize the man and put Lacoste in touch with Victorine Palat, the younger sister of Landrieu's sixth known victim, Anna Cologne, who had made an identical inquiry in 1917. So Lacoste and Palat teamed up, and their case ended up finding its way to Inspector Jules Belen of the Paris Flying Squad, which if you aren't familiar, this is a special branch of the Serious and Organized Crime Command within London's Metropolitan Police Service designed to investigate robberies. So Belen actually falsely took the credit for Landrieu's arrest and plagiarized Palat and Lacoste research. Uh, but in reality, the way he was captured was only due to a chance sighting of him on April 11th, 1919 by Lacoste's friend, Laura Bonheur, Bonheur, chalked that one up to a loss, who was out <laughs> shopping with his mistress and spotted him. And in the case of Landrieu's family, while his wife and Maurice were arrested, they were never formally charged and were released in July of 1920. In the 1930s, his house in Gambai was converted into a restaurant. And they knew what it was when they converted it into a restaurant. It was like a tourist attraction, which is kind of messed up. In 2017, it was eventually put up for sale. But the oven that he used to burn his victims was sold in auction in 1923 to a businessman who wanted to put it on display for who knows why. And that's it. That's the end of the tale of Bluebeard. What? Oh, my God. There needs to be like an HBO series, like a like a mini series or something that's it should be yeah incredible yeah there there's a lot there's a lot going on there and i'm i'm shocked honestly that like his house was made into a restaurant and people went and it was a supposedly successful restaurant at the time and that someone wanted that oven is the is really gross so he was he was burning people in the oven right like he was yeah. trying to get rid of them that way and, and so if they made it into a restaurant i'm pretty sure they still use that oven no there's no way you like, you think well because if it's a restaurant they're baking stuff so well no but the they made, it was turned to a restaurant in the 1930s and the oven was sold in 1923 oh okay okay because that like that would be one of the sickest horrible like tourist attractions like yeah you're eating a pie that was baked oh, in an oven. Very Sweeney Todd. That also. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's a hor- horrifying story. 
horrifying story. Well, it's crazy in the 1920s that serial killers ever got caught. Because there was there was um, mm-hmm. a couple of them. There, there was that one book, uh, Devil in the White City with H.H. H. Holmes. I think he was around the same time, too. He was doing some crazy stuff. Eek. Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. All right. So uh, <laughs> my second crime story is not as intense. <laughs> but it's it's still as serious, uh, which is subjective. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. So this one, this one comes from the. Uh, I'm going to pronounce this one wrong. It's the Winota Daily Star. I think I got that. That's a, that sounds um, right. Yeah. Uh, so this one, I'm going to show you a YouTube clip. Oh, okay. I'm ready. Yeah, but I'm going to show you at the end, and I'm going to need you to decide a question: Is this immoral or not immoral? Okay. Okay. So the article is: Courts to rule if shimmy is illegal. Chicago police conduct Sunday morning raid of Southside dance halls. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know if it was going to be shimmy as in like dancing. Okay, continue. <laughs> so, so this happened in Chicago, November 20th. There were a series of police raids, which is great because during this time, there's armed robberies everywhere. There's unknown serial killers, you know, going around doing their business. But this is what the police focus on is to is crack down on illegal dancing. (laughs) (laughs) So they uh, they do these raids on some dance clubs. They quote scores of cabarets, gambling houses and saloons were invaded by the police in the most conservative drive launched against them in many months. At the Entertainer's Cafe, a Southside establishment, the proprietor and several inmates were arrested. So they they crack into this Entertainer's Cafe and they arrest a whole bunch of people who are doing the shimmy. The law enforcement is going to prosecute them in order to determine via the courts if the shimmy was legal or not. And the way that they were going to prosecute them was with the law at the time. I don't know what that law was called, but... Pretty much anyone who is guilty of immoral dancing was subject to a $200 fine <laughs> or one year of imprisonment. $200? What? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> $200 back then is $3,090 today. Oh, wow. So Th- imagine… This reminds me of the leapfrog thing. <laughs> like, very, very similar. Wow, they were really uptight back then. They called it the Roaring Twenties, but it must not have started yet. No, I, I think it was the last two years of the Twenties before the crash. <laughs> <laughs> I like to imagine if like the police raided like a high school prom dance and they were just like, <laughs> "You're all arrested, <laughs> three thousand dollars, or you're going to jail." But it's great because uh, in the article uh, they quote. Officials declared that they had witnesses who had testified that the shimmy was immoral. And so I have copied a YouTube link. I'm going to post oh, it in our okay. little chat here. Okay. And I think I have it. Where's the chat button? Here it is. Okay. So I'm sharing with Isaac the video to all of you viewers at home if you wish to watch it. I will, I will describe it as I watch. I'll do my best. Okay. It looks like this is like a... This is old news footage of people shimmy dancing in the 1920s. Let's see. Okay, they're literally just shimmying. Like, there's nothing else to it. They're not, like, grinding (laughs) on each other. They're literally just, like, moving their bodies back and forth. And some guy is, like, going up to someone else and pulling him away. 
and telling him, this is the third warning. The next time you'll shimmy out the front door on your front ear. <laughs> this is like really innocent dance. It's just fast dancing. It's the same kind of dancing they're doing normally. Just like kind of, you know, holding hands, uh, her arm on his shoulder, his arm on her waist, but just faster. Now he's trying to shimmy behind a tall person to hide the fact that he's shimmying. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this is very innocent. I really don't see anything wrong with this. Anything that would warrant a year in jail, let alone a $3,000 or $200 at the time fine. That is crazy. <laughs> so, so for those of you who want to watch this video, if you type in on YouTube, shimmy dancing is prohibited dash 1920 well we'll put it in the show notes too and then the the first one i shared was how to dance the shimmy and there's a very uh style stylish couple who are doing the the shimmy but if you go into about let me find it she shows it in like two seconds okay okay this is great go to 20 24 seconds in okay and they demonstrate literally what the shimmy is <laughs> 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 okay, so they badly imitate what the shimmy. They they talk about how it's like provocative, and they didn't really know what they were doing. They're literally just like holding on to each other and shaking like they're having seizures. Is kind of what it looks like. <laughs> wow! So the Chicago PD, <laughs> you know, what? Down. I kind of get that. I kind of to save people from terrible dancing. I understand now <laughs> after seeing this video. So would maybe you... maybe those people in the 1920s video were just abnormally good at shimmying. <laughs> and everyone else was just really bad. So would you consider this dance immoral? Yes, 100%. Hands down. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down. These people, a year in jail is not enough. <laughs> Five years minimum. Five years minimum. Advertisement. All right, so I found an advertisement slash article. It's written like an article in the Muncie, Indiana Star Press on Monday, November 28th, 1921. And the headline reads, Would not marry with stomach trouble. Miss Lively states simple intestinal antiseptic put her in condition for life's duties, which is a very misogynistic headline, I will point out. <laughs> now, this is clearly an advertisement, and it's stated as such at the end of the article, which is interesting, with, ADV period to show that it's an advertisement, which unlike Miss Lydia E. Pinkham's ads, which I have not seen on any of hers. Uh, but let me let me read some of this. I could not eat anything at all and have suffered a great deal from stomach trouble. Since I have been taking Adlerica intestinal antiseptic, it has done wonders for me. I can now eat three meals a day and anything that I want and also sleep well and am ready to get married. Signed, Miss Carrie Lively. Now, this is supposedly the most complete system cleanser ever offered to the public, acting on both the upper and lower bowel, get both for the price of one, and removing foul matter, which poisoned the system for months and which nothing else can dislodge. It brings out all gases, thus immediately relieving pressure on the heart. It says to, quote, Try it after a natural movement and notice how much more foul matter it brings out, which was poisoning you. And I like how they try to describe shitting your brains out as inoffensively as possible, because that's obviously <laughs> what they're talking about. <laughs> but then it has reports from physicians, which I looked up, by the way, and could 
only find their names and other advertisements in other papers for this product. Couldn't find anything about them being actual doctors. Dr. L. Ling Loy says, quote, I congratulate you on the good effect I had from Adlerica since I prescribed it. Dr. James Weaver says, He's found nothing in his 50-year practice to excel Adlerica. Dr. F.M. Prettyman, <laughs> that's his name, Dr. F.M. Prettyman says, he, quote, uses Adlerica in all bowel cases. Some require only one dose. And Dr. J.E. Puckett says, quote, after taking Adlerica, I feel better than I have for 20 years. I haven't the language to express the, quote, in caps, awful impurities eliminated from my system. And so I did some mild research on this, and I found a short little blurb from a website called bergsayings.com. And the website looks pretty 90s, so take this with a grain of salt. It was literally just text on a page and photos. Uh, but the name Adlerica, according to this website, was invented as an adage for Dr. Adler's cure for appendicitis. And it was originally invented to treat appendicitis prior to the formation of the FDA and was being marketed as such. But when there wasn't any evidence that there actually was a cure for appendicitis with this medicine, the FDA informed them that they couldn't use the word cure in the medicine because there was no proof that it actually cured anything. And there never was a Dr. Adler. The people who own this company just made that up. But they continued to sell this until 1944, advertising it as a treatment for constipation, when the company eventually met its demise and became Chester Kent Inc., which folded in 1959. <laughs> I just I just imagined like so it's someone on their wedding day where she's like, I'm not ready to get married. I need to try this. <laughs> I know. Shits her brain. I need laxatives, stat, or else I can't get married. <laughs> Like what a weird what a weird marketing tactic. That's not the way I would have gone with it. Like playing a sport is probably better, you know, or I don't know. I mean, is there really a good way to say this medicine stopped me from shitting my brains out? I really don't know. <laughs> but I don't think the wedding was the way to do it. <laughs> like are women going to read this and be like, oh, "Finally, this was holding me back from marriage." Just being constipated. <laughs> I would have loved if they took this same advertisement approach, but presented it in the in the form of like a 1950s commercial or 1940s commercial where it's like black and white. <laughs> like the husband walks in, he's like, Are you ready for your your uh your marriage day? <laughs> <laughs> and she like bends over in pain, and then the voiceover comes <laughs> and she's like, I can't get married. I'm constipated. <laughs> <laughs> National news. I got a article that's kind of crime related, but I, th I thought it was a little bit more national news. And it reads, Marines will guard mail at stations. And then there's three subtitles. Cabinet approved scheme to protect postal employees. Robberies increasing. And mails may be delayed but not lost, Hayes promises public. So this occurred November 8th, and the president and his cabinet reached a decision that they were going to deploy about 1,000 Marines to guard postal stations, railway mail cars, and mail trucks. And the Marines were going to get sent to Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Dallas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Cleveland, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Richmond, and Atlanta. 
Oh, like all over. All, all over, over the country. All across the whole U.S. Because apparently, mail robberies had gotten so bad that in one year from April 1920 to April 1921, there had been a total of about $6,300,000 worth of like stolen assets. Wow. Which in today translates to 97 billion three hundred forty six thousand nine hundred sixty six <laughs> like wow so so roy gardner was just one of many yes everyone was robbing male people <laughs> it's just Ro- royal uh roy gardner became like the uh the male band instagram influencer <laughs> or star celebrity of male robberies. <laughs> that's funny it was kind of funny because to combat mail theft in april 9th 1921 the Postal Service decided that they would arm their essential employees. Uh, and on top of that, they also put out bounties on mail robbers, which I think is awesome if someone wrote like an action movie where it's just someone who's a bounty hunter chasing someone who's just robbing the mail. I I would watch that. I think that'd be pretty cool. Just like a um, mail carrier in like those tight <laughs> shorts, tight small shorts, except they have like a big assault rifle just chasing them down. Package delivered. (laughs) (laughs) After they decided to arm the postal workers and put bounties out, they noticed a, quote, an improvement at the rate of of over 1,000% per annum. I don't know what 1,000% per annum is, but I guess that means there is a significant decrease in the amount of robberies. So annum annum means just per year, by year. Oh. Oh, okay. So something. Okay. So so one thousand percent protection rate per year, is that what I was saying? I, I think uh as in like decrease in robberies. Oh, oh okay. So one thousand percent decrease in robberies for the year. Yeah. Wow. From April 9th until October 9th, so just I think that's about six months, only about three hundred and eighteen thousand dollars was stolen, which is about four million nine hundred and seventy-two thousand today. The downside, though, to arming the postal employees was that there was a lot of casualties because (laughs) the local mailmen kept getting in gunfights with robbers, which is just something I I, I think is just odd to try and imagine in our time, just the postal employees getting in gunfights. So to combat this, the president deployed Marines to guard the mail, quote, pending the organization of a permanent armed guard as a branch of the Postal Service. And oh, I didn't, is that the National Guard? Is that what no, becomes the National Guard? No, see, I didn't know this either, but today we actually do have something called the Postal Inspection Service, which operates under the USPS, the United States Postal Service, and they are, according to Google, quote, an elite police force. So the U.S. Postal Service actually has a police force that guards the mail. I knew that. I I thought they were always like more... Like the FBI, but for the postal office and less like on the ground, you know, shooting, <laughs> shooting robbers. That That's interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm sure the 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 job has evolved as time sure, has gone sure, on. Sure. But I wonder if this is like the first stages of that organization being developed. Yeah. All right. So these next two articles kind of have to deal with Veterans Day. They were written in November 8th and November 10th. This is before when they when they still considered Veterans Day to be Armistice Day. It was very World War One heavy. And so these two articles kind of deal with that. The first article comes from the Democrat Chronicle, and it reads, 
America's unknown soldier reaches home soil today. And I'll just read the article. November 8th, Washington. America's unknown soldier will reach home shores shortly after 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Orders went out from the Navy Department today to the cruiser Olympia, bearing the unknown dead to dock at the Washington Navy Yard at 4 p.m. tomorrow. The historic cruiser was reported early today as having passed within the Virginia Capes. The vessel is expected to enter the mouth of the Potomac River late today or tonight and accompanied by a single destroyer of the detail which met her beyond the Capes, proceeding slowly towards Washington. We, we have that. I don't know where that monument is. I think it's in Washington. Should have researched that. The, the Washington <laughs> Monument? No, no. The, the, there, there's a monument, the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It's, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, It's, yeah. it's a really big one. D.C. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so that's that's what this article is talking yeah, about. Yeah, this, this article oh, is where they're bringing, oh. bringing that unknown soldier who's in that tomb. They're bringing him there. Wow, that's cool. So this is the unknown soldier. The second article I thought was very appropriate. Just it, it, It's one of those blasts from the past where it, it really puts you in the moment in time. And I'll just I'll, I'll read an excerpt from it because I just thought it was a really strong article. It comes from the Freeport Journal Standard, and its title is, Many a Mother Thinks Unknown May Be Her Boy, Washington, November 10th. And it's an excerpt from an article by uh, Herbert Walker. Shivering a bit beneath a thin shawl, she had waited long before the Capitol. She was old and gray and bent. Her clothes showed she had seen better days, but her face wore a sort of sad radiance, for she was an unknown mother come in from a small town quite distant that she might meet her boy back after weary months from France. It was her boy who lay in that rotunda, the unknown soldier back from France, honored and sung by the nation, paid an homage greater than the dreams of kings. She typified a score of mothers who were here today to honor the unknown soldier, each believing it was her boy. They say he's an unknown soldier, she told another woman in the waiting room. He's not unknown. I'm sure he's my boy. And I'm so proud. Just think, the whole country has a part in his funeral. A while back, this is reaching to the depths of my mind, so who knows how true this is. But I heard on a podcast um, years ago, I forget which one, but they were talking about the unknown soldier and how many families have tried to get the body back i think one family in particular is like this is my son we want his remains we want to give him a proper burial he doesn't need to stand for this country so it's very interesting to hear this article back in the 1920s of people doing the same thing and how long that battle has probably been going on Ooh, yeah no i mean that i i I think that there's a huge aspect of that too and i wonder how many of it is just like a collective thing, like like all those mothers being like, yeah, the, the, this unknown soldiers, all of our sons or, or something like that. So I wonder how much of it was people actually believing, yeah, this is my son, or if it was more of like a... Um, symbol. Symbol, yeah. And I, and I was reading an NPR article the other day, and I thought it was really interesting because the NPR article literally came out maybe like a couple of days ago. Yeah. And the NPR article reads... Visitors allowed on Tomb of the Unknown Soldier Plaza for the first time in a century. So these mothers who are there to honor the unknown soldier 
were some of the last people to be able to go on the plaza or go to the the monument. Oh, wow. In about a century, because only a couple of days ago were people allowed to actually leave flowers there. That's that's crazy. One of the things I really like about doing this podcast is how, you know, you, the saying history repeats itself is very true. But more and more, the more we do these articles, I'm like, it literally repeats itself to the T, like a hundred years <laughs> later sometimes, in a very unsettling way, too. Pandemic and this and, you know, many, many other things. It's it's interesting. My, my mind went to a very silly place, and we were talking about Miss E. Lydia Pinkman's... Uh, Lydia E. Pinkham. Do not Pinkham, say her name in vain. <laughs> <laughs> who's who's who who who's that actress who who has goop or whatever it's called? Oh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow. What if Gwyneth Paltrow is just is Lydia E. Pinkham <laughs> reincarnated? Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, that's such an astute observation. Yeah. I see so many similarities there. Although I will say Lydia E. Pinkham is maybe a better businesswoman. Um. <laughs> Or maybe people are just smarter today and they're not falling for the same shtick that Gwyneth Paltrow is trying to pump out. <laughs> Although, I mean, she is successful, I will say. I could do I could do a whole podcast on Gwyneth Paltrow. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> we we should we should we should do it like a comparison, Miss uh, <laughs> versus Gwyneth. Last week, one Gwyneth Paltrow ago. Start from the beginning <laughs> of her life. <laughs> She'll be like that, like that thing where uh, it's with with like Keanu Reeves, where they keep finding like old photos of these people who look exactly <laughs> like them. Gwyneth Paltrow uh, is, is actually the same lady. We find Each. that a hundred years ago, Keanu Reeves and Gwyneth Paltrow, their ancestors were in a duel to the death, and it's only time until this happens again. Her her product is just that effective. <laughs> she must stop her from aging. Red pill. <laughs> Blue pill or this new goop lotion that smells like my <laughs> vagina. Helps with my cycles. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, moving on to human interest. So, my first human interest article is from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on Saturday, November 26th, 1921. And it's a, it's, it's kind of a fun one. The writer had a lot of fun with this one. I, they really seemed more like a comedy writer in this than an actual author. So the headline reads, Judges at Baby Show think Solomon's job was sinecure as mothers riot for a prize. Uh, sinecure means like a position requiring little or no work, but they get a lot of money for doing it. And so the article begins by saying, quote, Great fish hooks. What a time. Borough Park staged a baby parade yesterday with an award of prizes at the conclusion. It took on somewhat the complexion of a football mass play before the verdict was announced. And this next excerpt reads, The Assyrians, who, quote, came down like the wolf on the fold, had very little on the wave of tempestuous mothers who engulfed the judges, each clamoring forth the virtues of her particular child. If you don't know who the Assyrians are, they're one of the first modern civilizations that existed from around like the 25th century BC to its collapse in the early 600s BC. And so the journalist is relating these mothers to them. Quote, there are times when the business of awarding a $10 gold piece as first prize to a baby savors too much of one of the seven tasks of Hercules. 
It was hard work for the judges, few. They were called upon to display the combined tact and diplomacy of Solomon and Daniel come to judgment. There were 25 entrants. They were the finest babies in that section of Borough Park. Ask the mothers. Ask them also who should have had the first prize. Gosh. And then it talks about like the start of the pageant and how, quote, each carriage was as resplendent as a triumphal chariot. And then talks about how during the parade, the mothers would literally race ahead of one another and call out to the judges, look at my baby, look at my baby, while they were walking by. And then there's a subheading that reads, Candy Ends Battle of Babies. <laughs> and it says that the judges were being bombarded by the mothers and their children in strollers. And to pacify the ones who had not won prizes, a confectioner began to throw five-pound boxes of candy to the mothers that were crying. And it says, quote, The saccharine shower had the effect of a barrel of oil scattered on a rough sea. In two minutes, the threat of a riot was over, and the battle of babies was at an end. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I, I totally see what you mean where he's like, yeah, this guy should be a... Uh... A comedy writer because he's comparing the judges like with these like Herculean like tasks. <laughs> it it sounds it sounds very like a John Oliver type bit, <laughs> very much like a John Oliver type bit. It was funny though. I you know I enjoyed it. He was probably exaggerating <laughs> a little bit for comedic <laughs> effect, uh, but I, I'm sure I'm sure his editor was like. He comes up with an article. He's like, there was a baby show today. These babies won. The editor's like, I'm sorry, we need it to be like a thousand words at least. You really <laughs> got to like drag this shit out. And then he comes back with this. Some ambitious journalist is like, all right, what's, what's my first project? Baby shower or baby show. Mm, okay. All right. I'm going to make the most of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I got one last article. Uh, it's a human interest. And it answers the question, what happens when you're twins and you love the same man? Love it. Well, it's called A Love Tragedy. Sub Subtitle. Twin sisters drew lots for death by poison. Girl on trial for murder is acquitted. Whoa. <laughs> so Whoa. That's not where I thought this was going at all. <laughs> In the beginning, you're like you, you. You're just like, yeah, it's probably poison or something. How to make like hydrogen, <laughs> like chloride? I, I guess like, you're, wow. you're not wrong. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of shocked at the. I, <laughs> you straight up guessed it. <laughs> uh, I maybe we're doing too much of this podcast. I'm getting too <laughs> too deep into the 1920. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm not I'm, I'm just gonna summarize the article i'm not gonna read from it but this is pretty much what happens it's um november 17th in geneva switzerland a pair of twin sisters are both dating the same guy and the twin sisters are da they're dating this former hungarian officer who was unable to tell the sisters apart he'd go on a date with them thinking he was with one sister and then find out he was actually on a date with the other one <laughs> unable to figure out who he was with he was like, okay, you know what? Y'all figure out which one of you are going to marry me. And the Twiz sisters were like, yeah, this should be easy to figure Wait, out, you know. Pa pause real quick. Pause real quick. Um, on the date, did the sisters not tell him who they were? 
<laughs> I guess I didn't go by first names. Like I just <laughs> <laughs> just by look. Oh, hey, you. How you doing? <laughs> it was yeah. This this falls on the on the Hungarian officer because he didn't remember her name. It was like, <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> uh, okay. It, <laughs> So yeah, the 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 sisters, they're just like, yeah, you know, this should be easy to figure out. Now, most people would do rock, paper, scissors, you know. Uh it, it was invented in ancient China, so it did exist, rock, paper, scissors, but unfortunately, rock, paper, scissors didn't hit Europe until 1927. So the twin sisters <laughs> were like, Okay, you know, we'll figure out this a, a, a different way. And we're pretty hardcore, so we'll just use poison. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> So the twin sisters took two glasses of water and mixed poison into one of them. Then they drew lots, which honestly just could have decided it then and there, but instead yeah. they decided to keep yeah. going. And the loser had to drink poison. Well, the loser drank the poison and died. Shortly thereafter, she was arrested and the Hungarian officer disappeared. Of course. <laughs> yeah, he's not going to stick around after he sees what they do. He's like, this is not worth it. <laughs> he's like, these bitches are crazy. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, yeah, he he just noped out. And the other twin sister was acquitted because of, technically it was more of a suicide. So she wasn't really. I don't think she can get really tried for murder when the other one willingly drank it. And that's the story. That's that's what happens when <laughs> when you when you're a twin and when you're twins and you're in love with the same man. You, you know, there's <laughs> there's so much more there. They they really like. Can you imagine the other things they competed about in life? <laughs> like just throughout their life that led them to this moment. Like we like the same dude. Yeah, let's. One of us is gonna die for him. <laughs> And it, it doesn't seem like there is any, like, animosity between them from this article. It sounds like it's just like, yeah, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to decide it. Whatever the outcome, I respect I respect the outcome. And they really just, uh, they really did it. They really just, wow, that's shocking. All right, so our last article comes from the Dixon Evening Telegraph from Dixon, Illinois, on Saturday, November 19th, 1921. And the headline reads, Mardi Gras is a great success despite storm. Crowd see parade in rain and join in festivities. So this article is about, as it says, the great Mardi Gras party that happened the night before, along with the coronation of Mardi Gras queen, Margaret Burke. It says that had the weather been more suitable for such an affair, thousands would have been present at the crowning of the queen and the introduction of her four pretty attendants. Everything moved off like clockwork under the masterful hand of Marshal Amos Bosworth and aide Frank Coe. Then it talks about the cars on the parade and the queen car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. It was a great parade. And then it goes on to talk about how the queen was beautiful, really beautiful, beautiful with all of her natural something. I don't know what the word is smudged of young womanhood, her hair silvered with something which was not age, which gets off the velvet softness of her cheeks. And it talks about the maids of honor, and it lists the maids, among them which are Maude McCune, Goldie Huggins, and Rachel Eastman. Remember those names. I want you to remember those names. Maude McCune, Goldie Huggins, Rachel Eastman. I want to remember Goldie Huggins. It's a great name. <laughs> Mayor Mark Smith made an introduction speech to welcome the queen and congratulated the band, and the queen was crowned. There was a reception after and a, quote, brilliant ball 
in the dance halls. Now, why am I bringing this up and going into so much detail on this seemingly innocent parade? Well, I'll tell you. I decided to look into Miss Margaret Burke and this so-called election, and I will tell you what I found. On November 8th, 1921, just 11 days earlier, there was an article in the same paper titled, Miss McCune Leads in Contest to be Mardi Gras Queen. Yes, that's Maude McCune, one of the maids of honor. It talks about how the big ballot boxes to name the queen for the night of November 18th were open yesterday, being November 7th, and the official standings are at the top, Maude McCune with 2,344 votes, Goldie Huggins with 1,648 votes, Anna Holmes with 1,631 votes, Rachel Eastman with 1,361 votes, and at the bottom is Margaret Burke at 1,200 votes this so-called queen. And this seems a lot lower than Miss McCune's 2,344 votes. Now it goes on to say that the next official count of the votes will be at 10 p.m. on the next Saturday, which will be November 12th, just one week before the vote. It says that the contestant who secures the most votes between Monday and Saturday will be given a present of 1,000 votes free by the committee. The next highest will receive 750, then 500, then 250. It says, quote, much enthusiasm is being shown by the contestants as the race for queen progresses, and it will be very interesting. But this seems fishy to me because Margaret is behind Maude by a total of 1,144 votes. Maude is ahead of everybody by quite a bit, and I couldn't find the standings for the final vote tallies. But if Margaret won and provided Maude didn't get any more votes in that week, that means Margaret would have had to have gotten at least 145 new votes in a single week. And sure, that seems doable. But according to worldpopulationreview.com, the population of Dixon, Illinois in 1920 was 8,200 people. Right now, adding up all the votes, we're currently at 21,394 votes. So maybe they had other contests that give people extra votes like this one. But even if that's the case, the likelihood of Margaret going from the very little amount of votes she has to becoming queen is very, very unlikely. And I'm calling fraud on this election. Shenanigans! (laughs) Shenanigans! (laughs) That's that's like election fraud right there. (laughs) It is It is election fraud. That's exactly what it is. There's no way that's real. Especially with Mon McCune, Goldie Huggins, and Rachel Eastman being the maids of honor. You know they were just there giving... Margaret Burke, the stink guy the entire time. How dare you be queen? That was my title. <laughs> she soared from last place to, to queen. Yes. I would be furious. <laughs> yes. Something fishy definitely happened on this chilly November day. Something fishy. <laughs> There's a murder somewhere in there. <laughs> there is, <laughs> with some There's some Coen Brothers-esque murder plot <laughs> in there. <laughs> Uh, it does seem like a great basis for like a Wes Anderson film, I will say. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Last Week 100 Years Ago. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Last Week 100 Pod for clippings of these articles and more. And we will catch you next time. Last Week 100 Years Ago is created by Isaac Smith. This episode produced by Michael Karch and Isaac Smith. Editing by Michael Karch. Additional editing and sound mixing by Jeremy Zussman. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for clippings of these articles and more at Last Week 100 Pod. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.